Well, hey, everyone. Merry Christmas. I've got great news for you guys. You guys, you guys probably know that Christmas is a 12-day celebration, right? So after today, you still have 10 whole days of Christmas left. So you need to start asking your loved ones where your extra presents are. Um, and time to bake some more cookies. Make another ham or a turkey. This is still going on, you guys. <laughs> but Merry Christmas. Um, um, you know, one of my favorite things about Christmas, you know, people are really into Christmas movies. Are, are you Christmas movie people? I'm not, and so people reference Christmas movies all the time, and I don't know what they're talking about. But I do like movies uh, in general, and uh, and so I thought I might do a little quiz um, with you guys this morning. There's um, there's this thing that happens in in movies and in films in particular, where there'll be a theme, a, a musical theme, so a motif, a handful of notes that are going to indicate something uh, important about an idea or a character or a location or an object that should all. That, that's supposed to trigger us to something that's going on. So these are really easy. Let me see if I, you guys can get this. If I said, dun 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 what is coming your way? Jaws, right, a shark. All right, now this one, I tested it on some of my younger friends today, but I think I have confidence in all of us. What about this one? Who is coming towards you in a tornado? the Wicked Witch, right, in the Wizard of Oz, right? Mrs. Gulch is riding her bike past your window, and you're about to get sucked into Oz. Ooh, that was a little rougher. All right, how about this? Dun, 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 dun. Who's coming down the hallway at you? Darth Vader, that's right, yeah. All right, these are musical themes. They're, they're, there's themes in art, and there's themes in literature, and there's themes that I think are a little easier in film music for us to put our fingers on. And some of us are better at listening to them uh, than others. I think I may have told you guys before that my brother, my twin brother, is a fantastic musician. And, uh, and when we go to see movies together, he is listening to the music. As a matter of fact, he'll mutter to himself about what the music is doing. I'm like, what are you talking about? He's like, oh, nothing. There was just a key change there. And like, you know, like, but I remember one time we were going to see a movie that had a big twist in it. And I remember us all getting out of the movie and talking about this twist. And, oh, could you believe it? No one saw that coming. And my brother's like, what do you mean? It's like when the song that they played for him was the same as the song they played for the bad guy, of course he was going to do that, <laughs> right? Because like, he hears the theme. He knew what was going to happen. Well, there's a theme that runs through the Christmas story. It's still Christmas today, so let's talk about one of these themes that runs through the Christmas story, this, these notes that play over and over throughout some of these Christmas passages. And let's see if what we can see that that theme is trying to teach us about who Jesus, Jesus is and who we are. Let me challenge you guys and see if you can pick up on it. So in Isaiah 9, do you remember we're told that, that Jesus was coming, a son was going to be born, and his name would be Wonderful Counselor, and then we're told that of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end, and on the throne of David and over his kingdom, he'll come to establish it and uphold it. Or do you remember the announcement of the angel to Joseph in a dream? And the angel says, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife. Or maybe the angel Gabriel's announcement to Mary about what's going to happen to her and the son that she's going to carry. And Gabriel says, the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. Do you remember Zechariah and Elizabeth, uh, the parents of John the Baptist, 
when John is born and Zechariah can finally speak, he, he sings this song to God about the, the outworking of God's plan around these miraculous births. And, and Zechariah says, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited and redeemed his people and has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David. Or even the, the angel's announcement on that first Christmas as the angel appears to the shepherds and says, Fear not. And behold, I bring you good news of great joy that's for all people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. Did you guys hear the theme? It's David, right? David, those, those notes play in our head. There's something the Bible is telling us, something of significance. Like this name David keeps coming up over and over again. That In these references to Jesus and the nativity stories, and even throughout the whole Gospels, there's this theme that plays, which is David, King David, is someone important to what's happening here. A, a musical note that's sounding that we should pay attention to. So this morning, we're going to study a specific reference for this, for this motif, for this theme that plays. And so we're going to be in 2 Samuel chapter 7. We hardly go there. So I really want to encourage you, if you have your Bible, get it out. If, you don't, if you're at home, pause and go grab your Bible. If you're sitting in a pew, pick it up because it's just so good to read it together out of God's Word. It's a part of the scripture we don't go to a lot. It's in the Old Testament. It's one of the history books in the Old Testament. So you're turning to 2 Samuel chapter 7. And as you do, let me just remind you of what's happened here. Um, David was uh, 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 the last son of a family of a lot of sons, and he was a shepherd, and the, the prophet Samuel came to David's family and anointed him to be the future king of Israel, and it was a total surprise. And then David ends up having this very influential young life where he's part of God's victory over Goliath. And God starts giving him military victories and brings him into the court of the king uh, Saul, of King Saul, and he plays music and he has all these, these, this influence in what's going on and he has all this, this military power, but he ends up kind of making Saul jealous and he gets run out of town and, and, and he gathers around him some people who are going to help kind of bring God's, um, God's kingdom uh, under a new ruler, David. And finally, as Saul leaves the scene, David becomes anointed king over Israel. He has all these victories, and he kicks out all the bad guys, and then he moves into a city that hadn't belonged to God's people before. He moves to Jerusalem, and he makes the capital of God's kingdom, the city of Jerusalem, and they've just moved in, and that's where we pick up today. That's where this key theme originates it's where, that we're going to hear. And so we're going to read this extended passage because we're going to understand that this theme that's playing, that, that God is spelling out a commitment, a promise. The, the Bible word for it is a covenant. That God is spelling out this commitment that he's making to David that is the, under, that is the foundation, it's the undercurrent, it's the tones that play underneath the Christmas story. We'll see that what happens in the birth of Jesus, to understand that, we have to understand why the people of Jesus' day were so invested in the historical figure of David, because God's promises to that ancient king were still in play. So would you read with me? We're going to read only half of this chapter together. I encourage you to read the rest of it sometime today. But let's read in 2 Samuel chapter 7, starting in verse 1. Now... When the king lived in his house, and the Lord had given him rest from all his surrounding enemies, the king said to Nathan the prophet, See now, I dwell in a house of cedar, but the ark of God dwells in a tent. And Nathan said to the king, Go, 
Do all that is in your heart, for the Lord is with you. But that same night, the word of the Lord came to Nathan. Go and tell my servant David, thus says the Lord, would you build me a house to dwell in? I've not lived in a house since the day I brought up the people of Israel from Egypt to this day. But I have been moving about in a tent for my dwelling. In all places where I have moved with all the people of Israel, did I speak a word with any of the judges of Israel whom I commanded to shepherd my people Israel, saying, why have you not built me a house of cedar? Now therefore, thus you shall say to my servant David, thus says the Lord of hosts, I took you from the pasture, from following the sheep, that you should be prince over my people Israel. And I have been with you wherever you went and have cut off your enemies from before you. And I will make for you a great name, like the name of the curate ones of the earth. And I will appoint a place for my people Israel and will plant them so that they may dwell in their own place and be disturbed no more. And violent men shall afflict them no more as formerly from the time that I appointed judges over my people Israel. And I will give you rest from all your enemies. Moreover, the Lord declares to you that the Lord will make you a house. When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring. I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. When he commits iniquity, I will discipline him with the rod of men and in the stripes of the sons of men, but my steadfast love will not depart from him as I took it from Saul, whom I put away from before you. And your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. In accordance with all these words and in accordance with all this vision, Nathan spoke to David. Then King David went in and sat before the Lord and said, Who am I, O Lord God, and what is my house that you have brought me thus far? Let's pray. Can I pray this morning that as we hear this story, we might be reminded of that long plan that you've had to establish a king and a kingdom that would have no end. And God, I ask this morning in the hearing of all who are gathered in this space or watching online, God, that we might know this promise that comes to you because of your steadfast love for us, that comes from you because of your steadfast love. And we ask it in the name of Christ. Amen. Well, let's take a closer look at this passage. Here's all we're going to do this morning. We're just going to look at four ideas, four lessons, four things that the story of David, this particular story of David, can, can teach us that will help us better understand Jesus' birth and Christmas time, and specifically us, our role, and what, what Christmas has to do with us. These promises, this covenant to David, comes alive in the person of Jesus. So just four ideas, four lessons we're going to learn. Here's the first one. The first lesson we learn is that God reverses humans' best ideas. God reverses humans' best ideas. So we read in that first part, here's what David intends to do. David says, look, I'm living in this awesome house, 
and God is in a tent, and I'm going to fix this. And it seems like a reasonable idea, especially when you consider the context of chapter 6. So another challenge, go back and read chapter 6, because what has happened in chapter 6 is David has, has taken over Jerusalem, and they have had all this military victory, and they decide, hey, it's time to bring the Ark to the Covenant over to this capital city. It's time to bring it into Jerusalem. And they're so excited about it. You guys remember what the ark is? The ark was God's presence. It was a symbol of his very presence with his people. It was was the most holy object that they had because it represented Yahweh with them. And so they're like, hey, let's bring this ark into town. And so they're like super excited and they're, they're bringing the ark in. And the problem was they didn't pay attention to what God's commands were regarding it. And they failed to do things the way that God had, had told them to do. And so this guy named Uzzah kind of reaches out to touch the ark to keep it from slipping. And do you remember? He gets struck dead. And the Bible says this in chapter 6. We're told this, that, that then David was afraid of Yahweh. David was afraid because he realized that he treated lightly something that was serious to God. And yes, he had all this celebration, but, but oh no, they didn't do things the right way. And so he takes some time and he pauses and they study and they learn and they wait and they reflect and they, they figure out the right way to move the ark. And they decide they're going to do it now and the time has come. And so now it's time to move it. And so with reverence and holiness and care and yes, with joy and celebration, the ark comes into Jerusalem. And we're told that David dances before the Lord and he throws this massive feast for all of God's people. And they just have this huge celebration. But with respect that needs to be shown God. And so, of course, right into that story comes David going, oh my gosh, I have this awesome house to live in, and and God's ark is still in this tent. I need to do something about it. And it seems a reasonable plan. As a matter of fact, even the prophet Nathan is like, yeah, go do do what you think is best. I don't see any problem with that. But God's word comes to the prophet in the middle of the night. And God asks this question in verse 5. Look down and see what God asks. He says, um, he says, would you build me a house to dwell in? You know, up to there in those first three verses, it said the king has this idea and the king has this idea and the king has this idea. And it's all of a sudden as God speaks, he says, tell my servant David. Right? God wants us to know, hey, who's in charge here? Yahweh's in charge. And he says, look, are you, do you really think you're going to build me a house? And he goes on down to verse 11. And what does he say? He says, no, I'm the Lord. And I declare to you, the Lord, I will make for you a house. You think you're building a house for me? I'm building a house for you. And so God reverses something that made sense to humans. He yeah, made, made sense to want to build God, to do a thing for God to build a thing, a physical thing for God. And yet, what's really happened is God says, no, I'm going to build a metaphorical house for you, your lineage. I'm going to make a name for you. Your offspring is going to sit on a throne that's never going to end, and I'm going to be like a father to your people. God gently corrects David here. David, you don't do for me. I do for you. And so we see this theme undergirds Christmas as well. Because if you and I were going to send a Savior into the world, we would not do it the way, the way God has done it in the Christmas story, right? We just wouldn't choose it that way. We wouldn't send a seemingly illegitimate child to a young, unwed teenage mother who is currently homeless. 
in a backwater uh, area of the world's largest empire. Like, that would not be our plan. As a matter of fact, it seemed like such a strange plan that when the wise men, the magi from the east, these really important, smart people, um, read the signs and figure out that there's going to be a, a king in Judea, they go where? To Jerusalem, right? Where a king should be, where, where a ruler should be. And they're never thinking that, oh, well, somewhere out here in like this, these fields and in this manger is the, is the king. We wouldn't do it this way. But this is the thing about God, right? He has plans that are not our plans. He has ways that are not our ways. Think about Isaiah 55 when God says, my thoughts are above your thoughts. My ways are not your ways. He says, as far as the heavens are from the earth, so are my thoughts above your thoughts and my ways beyond your ways. God does differently, things differently than we would. Which brings us to our next lesson. Our next lesson is just this. God works. Humans rest. That seems strange, right? Because we are so used to thinking in this world, a culture, and the culture for, for, for thousands of years have taught us that we are to do things for God. And yet this passage is teaching us that God is the one at work. If you're the kind of person who writes in your Bible, I would really encourage you to be one of those people. I would encourage you to go through this passage and circle all the places where God says, I have done or I will do. And you will find circle after circle after circle after circle after circle of what God says he will do. God says this, I took you out from being a shepherd and made you a prince. I've been with you wherever you've gone. I have given you victory over your enemies. I am going to make your name great. I'm going to appoint a place for my people. I'm going to give you rest. I'm going to make for you a house. I'm going to raise up your offspring. I'm going to establish this kingdom forever. So I ask you, what does David have to do? Did you notice? You didn't. Because David does nothing. What does David have to do? Nothing. God just says, look, this is what I'm doing. I'm declaring to you what I'm up to, and I'm going to build for you a house. And by the way, David, all that's left for you to do is rest from your enemies. What a God. What an amazing statement. God declares himself here to be the Lord of hosts. David, you thought you were the king. You're actually my servant. And by the way, I am the Lord Almighty, the God of angel armies. Is nothing too hard for me. Look what I can do. Look at all that I have done and all that I will do. And this lesson teaches us at Christmas time about the critical nature of faith. Because, friends, listen, we don't do for God. God does for us. And faith says, I trust you, Lord. And I will follow in obedience because you've already done everything that I need. God's promise of rest points us to the promise of rest that comes in Jesus. It says, stop your striving. A savior has come into the world. You don't have to save yourself. You don't have to justify yourself. God is the one working. Can't you imagine the, those, those characters in the first Christmas story thinking about it, right? They're thinking about this idea, right? That, that God was the one who came to David. I mean, you can just imagine Mary pondering the things she knew about David and how God was the one telling him, like, David, you really didn't do anything. Like, I would have been the one at work here. And that Mary would go, yeah, that seems right. That's what's happening to me. 
It reminds me of that commercial. Uh, do you remember that commercial? I think it was about 10-ish years ago, 8 to 10 years ago, where there's like a little kid dressed up as Darth Vader. Second Star Wars reference of the morning. You're welcome. <laughs> David is dressed up as Darth Vader. and uh, or, No, sorry, not David. That would be crazy. Kid is dressed up as Darth Vader, and he's standing in front of a car, and he's like, and he like pretends to use the force, and the car's like alarms go off, and he's like, whoa. It worked. He does it again, and the car alarms go on, and uh, and you see secretly it's his parents with the the remote, <laughs> the car remote, right? And the little kid thinks the whole time he's doing this thing. And these these videos, you guys, are all over the internet. Like kids who think they're using force powers on automatic doors. <laughs> it's really funny. As a matter of fact, just this summer there was a video going around of a kid who thought he was pushing his chair back and forth from the table with force powers. He was really into Star Wars, and it was really just his dad with his foot like moving the chair back and forth. And, uh, and so this is the picture. This is the picture of this lesson. This is the picture of what God wants to tell us in this story, this theme that plays under Christmas. We might feel like we're the ones doing a lot for God. But God is the one who works. And all of the glory that comes with him and all of the goodness that comes into our life and all the ways that we're learning and stretching and growing is really the work of God. We just rest by faith in him. Which is this third important lesson of this covenant with David for the Christmas story. This third important lesson is that God's promises are sure because they depend on his character of love. They don't depend on anything else. Did you see what he says down here, right? He looks, looked down and he says in verse um, 15, he says, my steadfast love is not going to depart. And so there's this idea that God is saying, look, my character is the one confirming my promises to you, right? And so go back and read, oh my gosh, you guys are getting a million assignments today. (laughs) Go read Psalm 89, which is a poetic retelling of the covenant with David. And in Psalm 89, you'll see that it's over and over and over again, we're told what? That God says, my steadfast love I'll keep for David. I'll keep for David forever because my covenant will stand firm for him. And God says, look, this promise that he's making where you do nothing and I do everything and I'm the one at work, it's really there because I love you. And yes, David, or, and yes, God has affection for David. We're told that David is a man after God's own heart. God really likes David. But this is a different kind of love. And you guys know we talk about it all the time. It's the Hebrew word hesed right? Steadfast covenant love. It's that idea that it's love that not just in like, oh, I feel warm and fuzzy towards you, but love in sense like I will be actively in a self-giving, committed way working for your best. That's what God says to him. And by the way, here's what God says. Do you hear what he's saying? He's saying, look, I will not fail to do what is best for you. My steadfast love is for you. My love is towards you, David. Like you can't, this is not gonna depend on you. And how do we know that? How do we know that that David doesn't have some sort of role to play here? How do we know that David needs to keep things right? It's because the rest of this story is a spectacular accounting of David's failures. You guys know what comes four chapters later? A, A woman named Bathsheba, whom David rapes, and then David murders her, her husband and then invests in a massive cover-up and ruins the kingdom, has to repent and be called out on it. Just six chapters later, David's family is totally going to implode. He's going to allow all this dysfunction to grow up among his children and all this brokenness and this wickedness, and then David is going to be on the run from his own capital city because his son is trying to take over the throne, and then his son is going to die. 
Just at the end of this chapter, God says, hey David, I don't, don't, go, don't take a census, don't count things, I'm the one in charge, don't forget I'm the one who does for you. And David decides he's gonna do it anyway and massive calamity comes on the kingdom. Oh and by the way, and then David's son Solomon who takes over the throne ends up introducing the worship of false idols to the kingdom and his heart turns from God and then David's grandson Rehoboam is gonna make the decisions that destroy the kingdom and divide it. So God's promises here can't possibly depend on David's ability and his offspring's ability to get things right because they don't, which is why God says, hey, your offspring, I'm going to discipline them like a father disciplines a child. Because you guys, discipline is an act of love as well, right? So God says, my steadfast love is toward you. Nothing's gonna take it away. Your adultery, your murder, your lying, Nothing takes away, my love is set upon you. And so when this theme plays underneath Christmas, we're reminded of God's steadfast love demonstrated in the baby on Christmas morning. Why did God send his son? Because he loves us. These nativity stories are supposed to be a reminder to us of God's character, of of dedicated love for us, that even though it cost his own son, he will do what it takes to love us. And so these themes are playing out, right? Like that God reverses human ideas and that God is working and we rest. And then by the way, we can trust what God is saying because his love is always towards us. And then we have this final theme and it's just this, that God's eternal plan is for King Jesus to reign forever. Books and books and articles and articles and all of this scholarly work have been done just on this chapter of scripture, this covenant with David. But we would do well not to miss what it just plainly says. The most obvious point, God is promising to place a descendant of David on the throne that lasts forever. Did you see it? The last verse of the covenant, right? The last verse of this promise, verse 16, in your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. And who is that king? Right? When, when this message came to those first characters, those obscure people, Mary and Elizabeth and Zechariah, and as those words come to them and Joseph and, and, and the shepherds on the hill, the word comes to them, hey, the, like this, the person who's going to sit on David's throne, he's be, thr- David's throne is being born right now. All of these, these ideas are coming into their head. Can't you just imagine? They're going, oh, for, for a thousand years we've been waiting. Because there's a thousand years between David and Jesus, and so a thousand years ago, God had said, there's gonna be a kingdom that lasts forever. My son is coming. I'm his father. And his kingdom is is gonna come, and he's gonna reign forever over the world. And can't you just imagine them sitting around and talking about it in those quiet moments going, wow, is God really doing what I think he's doing? The gospel writers want us to know that this descendant of David is Jesus. And so you see over and over and over again in the gospels that people say, son of David, have mercy on me. We know that when when Jesus comes into the city of Jerusalem in his triumphal entry, do you remember what they say? Hosanna in the highest, blessed be the name of the Lord, blessed be the son of David. The the first uh, Christians, the, the disciples, as the Holy Spirit comes upon them and they preach the first sermons, always grounded in this promise to David. They're like, oh, look, God was working in the person of David and now that king has come. And it's Jesus. And Jesus himself, friends, in the very last chapter of the whole Bible, 
In Revelation 22, as we see Jesus revealed in his kingship, what does he say in that moment? He says, I am the root and the descendant of David. So they're waiting for this promise. A king is coming to reign. And friends, here's the most beautiful thing. This is what we've been talking about during Advent. We've been talking about that in the fullness of time, God sent this son, and this son was here to set us free from the law. And in setting us free from the law, he has adopted us into his family. And so the promises that were to David and came through Jesus as his offspring, who do those promises belong to now? You, me. So when when God says, my steadfast love is not gonna depart from you, David, or your offspring, my steadfast love is not gonna depart from Jesus, and by the way, it's not gonna depart from the ones he has adopted into his family, the co-heirs, the ones who have the same inheritance, And so as Jesus reigns forever in his kingdom, he calls you and I into that kingdom to know him as the Lord and Savior and master of our lives. So God sometimes undoes human plans. Sometimes we we need to know that God is the one at work and, and we're the ones to rest and have faith in him. We know that God's promises are sure because of who he is, not because of who we are. We know that King Jesus is going to reign forever. So what's our response? What do do we do this? You know, many times people say they really like practical applications in a message. You know, what should I go and do? And it's so interesting in a sermon like this, it's not a great question to ask. It's a good motivation, you know, what, what should I do? But in a sermon like this, in a message like this, where we know that God's whole point, God's whole point is that it's not about what we do for God. It's about what he has done for us then our response becomes something like David's. Who we're told when this message comes to him through the prophet Nathan, we're told in verse 18, that King David went in and sat before the Lord and said, who am I? It's a response of worship. You know, worship isn't really a fancy thing, right? We want to like, oh, tell me to, to go and, and, and serve the poor. Or tell me to make amends with a family member. Or tell me like, tell me what I need to do. How do I apply this? And all I want to say is like, worship is about recognizing who God is and who we are in light of his worthiness. The only response to the promise of God's steadfast love set upon us no matter what we do, that God's love is for us, is to worship him. Sit quietly before him. Take some time out, you guys. Just, like, pause. Sit down with God and reflect on who he is and his love towards you. David also prays. The whole rest of that chapter, go read it, is his prayer. It's a beautiful prayer. And the essence of his prayer is like, who am I, God, that you are doing this? And by the way, since you've promised to do it, go do it. That's the way we pray, right? We say, God, I know who you are. Here's what you're telling me that you want, you're, you're doing. Now please come and do it. He has this boldness, this courage to talk to God because God's promises are based on love. And then finally, just like David, you and I should embrace this long plan. David's going to see events that seem to undo these promises. David's not going to finish strong because love was always towards him. There are promises that God gives you and I, friends, that we will not see in this life. And we will go to our end hanging on to the faith that 
God is at work and that his love is for us and that I can't do anything to lose it and that he's trustworthy. And as we take our last breaths, we will trust that God is who he says he is. And that baby that came on Christmas morning is the man who will die on a cross so that we can be with him forever. We need to hear this theme playing, right? We get now why the Christmas story says, don't forget David, don't forget David, don't forget David, because these are the promises that all of the Christmas story hangs on. If we've learned this morning that because God's ways are not our ways and he sometimes upends and reverses human plans, then we should ask ourselves today, where am I tempted to want to control my own life? Where am I tempted to think that I know best and how can I tap into God's wisdom and trust his upside down way of living in the world? If one of the lessons we learn from this theme of David into the Christmas story is that God works and we rest, then we would ask ourselves, where am I striving to make myself worthy of God or others? Where am I trying to justify myself? Can I rest by faith in the goodness of God? Is that enough for me? If we hear this lesson that God's promises are unbreakable because they're built on his character of love, then we reflect, where do I doubt God's goodness towards me? As I think about the pain of my past or the frustrations of my present or my fear of the future, am I somehow doubting that God's love is for me in Jesus Christ? If we've learned this morning that God intends for Christ to reign, then we ask, where am I struggling to be king of my own life? And could I see myself instead as servant? Could I be obedient to the kingship of Christ here and now who will one day reign forever and before whom every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Christ is Lord? These are the lessons, the theme of David. This is the love that God has for us. Let's pray. God, I do pray for all of us who are present here or watching online or at some point later that we would be reminded that you love us, that you are the one who does. We don't do for you that you are the one at work and that we rest in you by faith to accomplish the things that you have promised. God, I pray that we would acknowledge your kingship not as a way of proving our faith to you, but as a way of living into the reality that you have established forever, that King Jesus will reign in justice and righteousness and holiness and grace and mercy to your people forever. God, I just ask uh, that those truths would sink deep roots into our lives. That we would find rest in knowing you love us. We ask it in Christ's name. Amen.